0: We are beginning our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Praise the Lord. I am very excited about it. If you would turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We are going to start with verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, let's pray, and let's talk about the gospel of Mark this morning. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your word, I thank you for the truth. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to preach through your word, and I pray God that you would help us, not just this morning, but in all the Sunday mornings in front of us, where we are going to learn about Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his life and his ministry. God, I pray you would help me to communicate and to speak the way that I should, and I pray that we would all have ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to us that is in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. So this morning, as an introduction to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to do a lot of background. And the the verse here, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then it immediately goes into the Old Testament as it is written. That's in verse 2. You are going to find in the book of Mark uh, what I sometimes have called a Cliff Notes version of the other Gospels. Uh, throughout church history, people viewed it. Um, uh, Augustine and I believe Athanasius was another one that believed that Mark was really just a summation uh, or a summary of the book of Matthew. And so it's the shortest Gospel that we've got of all the four. And it's not written by an apostle, but we're going to explain a little bit about that. Um, and it really was overlooked for about 1,800 years. Not that it wasn't a part of Scripture, but it was the least looked into of, uh, uh, in terms of importance because they really viewed it as, well, this is the summary uh, of, of the, maybe Mark and of Luke. Until they began to find out that Mark was probably written before all the other Gospels And it is the first of the Gospels that is written. And it is very likely that Luke and Matthew used Mark as source material when they were doing their Gospels. So throughout this process, we're going to be talking about the nature of the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, uh, several of those different important doctrines. But this morning, I just want you to know um, and keep in mind that when we say that we believe in inerrancy, how many of you have heard of that word, inerrancy? That means the scripture is without error. We believe that the scripture is without error. We believe in infallibility that's very similar. We believe the scripture is without error and it's perfect to do what it's supposed to do, which is teach us and for us to grow and it's useful for teaching and instruction instruction and reproof and correction, as the Apostle Paul taught. But also, uh, it's important to understand that doctrine of inerrancy because you live in a world that thinks what I just said is looney tunes. There are plenty of people that will grant to you that it's okay to believe in a spiritual book, and there's probably some good teachings... Uh, in those spiritual books, but there is no way that this book is any different than the Quran, and there's no difference in this book and any of the writings of Buddha or any of the meditations in, uh, you find in some of the other eastern religions. There, it's all, they're all just spiritual words, and people have their faith, and to suggest that this is the Word of God is a very, very, very bold, direct, straightforward claim, and that is the claim that we are making and believe. We believe at Celebration Church that this is the Word of God, it is living, it is eternal, it is without error, and it's useful to us to grow and to learn, but also that these words are life-changing words. They are not normal words. It is the Word of God to His people. That is what we believe. So, having said that, God uses throughout Scripture, the individuals and their personalities and their traits to write what they wrote. That's why Luke's Gospel is really technical Greek. And Mark's Gospel, Mark is, Greek's probably not his first language, but he wrote it in Greek. It's a little rough. It's a little straightforward. It's a little earthy. It's completely different in its style and presentation. How does that happen? Because God used Luke... Who was a doctor to write precise technical Greek language and historical account of his in his gospel? And he uses Mark to do it his way. So God uses people, He doesn't turn people into puppets. And yet at the same time, He's the one inspiring the words, which is really great. God is it's called compatibilism god is working with us and he worked with the authors of scripture so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, mark and who he is who in the world is mark when i was a kid i just assumed he was one of the disciples he wasn't one of the disciples he's not okay some I, some of you are already looking at me like wait a second He's not? Yeah, he's not one of the disciples. But we do think we have a reference to him, though, in the Gospel of Mark. Go to to the very end of the book in in chapter 14. This is, and by the way, a third of the 16 chapters, a third deal with the crucifixion and death uh, of Jesus Christ. So a lot of Mark is invested into the events surrounding that. And that's where we are. Uh, we've, our, Jesus has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been betrayed. The soldiers have come in and ta- are taking him. And look at verse 51 of Mark 14. And a young man followed him, so Mark was, we believe this is Mark, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Not necessarily the most courageous sounding moment in Scripture. So he's, he's wrapped up in a linen cloth. It's nighttime. Soldiers have come with torches. You can picture this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Mark. He's hanging around the periphery. They reach out to grab him. They get a hold of the linen cloth. He rips out of that and he's naked and runs away and it's included in his gospel. We believe that is who that is a reference to, and it's not necessarily the most flattering any more than it's not very flattering that Peter said, I'm not going to deny you, Lord, and then what's he do? He denies him. Let's get into who Mark is and a couple places um, Sorry, let me turn this off. I normally do that. Let's get into Scripture that describes uh, who Mark is as the author. In Acts chapter 12 is the first place. It's Acts 12.12. And you can follow along with me or just listen. Acts 12.12 is the first time you hear about Mark. And in Acts 12.12, does everybody remember when Peter was arrested and the angel let him loose? and Peter thinks it's a dream until he gets out of the prison and the door shuts, and then he realizes it's not a dream. And then Peter goes to a Christian home, and Acts 12.12 says, when he realized this, that this is not a dream, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, since there are 487 different Marys mentioned in the New Testament, have you all noticed this as you've read through the New Testament? Which Mary are we talking about? It's like when I was in high school, every other girl's name was Christy. So how did you know who Christy was? Is it Christy? You had to use the last name. Now whatever, there was a cartoon that they had the group on the playground called the Ashleys. Anybody remember that cartoon? There's different, there's different names that are really popular and when your kids are in school, it's like, oh, how many of them are there? Well, there's like four in the class. So you have to use the last name in order to figure out who they are. Well, Mary, another Mary, she's the mother, this is the only way to describe her, which assumes that her husband is probably dead, the mother of John, Greek name, whose other name was Mark. Or I have that backwards. Where many gathered together and were praying. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So the very first mention of John Mark, uh, or Mark, is right here. He's the son of... Of a mother who was hosting a church in her home, the next time we see Mark is in Acts thirteen verse six. this is after Paul and Barnabas, um, they are getting ready to be sent out on their first missionary journey. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John, who was John Mark, to assist them. So, so Mark is not a preacher. He never, in all of these accounts, does anything but this kind of work. He is some kind of helpful assistant guy that is serving in ministry. And then you find something that happens in Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they, Paul and Barnabas, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. That is an incredibly significant thing because the, the scene in Acts chapter 13 is when they go out, on their very first encounter, they have a spiritual battle with a wizard, if you read Acts chapter 13, who is trying to do all this stuff uh, and impress the people, and Paul rebukes him and he goes blind, and they have this confrontation um, with uh, with this guy. What is his name? I don't have that written down. Let's go over to Acts 13. chapter 13. Oh, it's, it's uh, Elemas, the magician. I call him, call him a wizard, but that's what he was. Uh, he was trying to turn people away from the faith. He was resisting them. And Paul does this thing where he says, he looks at him filled with the Holy Spirit and says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. You will, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is on you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun. For a time immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he needed people to lead him by the hand. And right after that, John Mark says, I didn't know it was going to be all like this. And he leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. That is exactly what happens. He, there's this confrontation. Now put yourself in his shoes. This brand new, this resurrection of Jesus has happened. There's, now we're 10, 15, 20 years past that point, and we are out preaching the gospel. The church is young. You're a part of it. And, and you start encountering weird stuff like this, where there is this supernatural demonstration of the power of God, which is both exciting and terrifying. And so John Mark leaves and goes back to Jerusalem after this says, uh, okay, he deserts the mission. And the reason we know that it was a desertion is in Acts chapter 15, several years later, Barnabas, who you find out in Colossians is the cousin of John Mark, just so you know, family. He, being more pastoral and kind, wants to bring Barnabas back onto the team. And Paul doesn't want anything to do with him because he deserted them in Acts 13. Let's look at Acts 15, verse 36. Isn't this a great picture of who wrote the Gospel of Mark? And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is Acts 15, verse 36. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. This is the first church split in church history. They separate on their missionary journey because of this disagreement over Mark. Barnabas took Mark his cousin, and they sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas. Paul and Silas, everybody knows those two names together. They departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So there is a disagreement over Mark because he was a coward of some kind and ran away. So why did he get to write a gospel? Anybody curious, how in the world did this guy write this? Before we do that, let's go to Colossians chapter 4. It's the very end of of, uh, the uh, book. Ten years after Acts 15, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And he writes three letters, one of which is Colossians and you see something has changed. In Colossians 4.10, towards the end of the letter, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, that's how we found out their cousins, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he, Mark, comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Mark has now become, ten years later, a comfort to the Apostle Paul as he's imprisoned in Rome. And then if you fast forward to the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4.11, this is the last few years that Paul has on earth. He's asking for a couple different things. He's asking for a cloak. He's in a prison and he's cold. He's an old man. He's asking for the parchments because he's still doing ministry work and writing and doing uh, preaching and and all of that to people that will come and listen. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. I've always loved this story of Mark in the background of the Gospels, in the background of the book of Acts, not known as a preacher, not an apostle, not a worker of miracles, but he is now, in 2 Timothy, described as useful, very useful to me by the same guy who said, we don't want anything to do with him because he deserted us. There's a really good lesson in here. I hope you all are hearing it. That God only has one kind of person He uses. Failures. Sinners. Losers. Among which all of us identify. There is only one kind of person that God uses. People like John Mark. He uses Broken, we've, you've heard this before, sinful people. But it is good to see what God does with somebody is He doesn't leave them in a place of cowardice. He doesn't leave them in a place like Mark was in in Acts chapter 15 where He ran away. Instead, He keeps working on us. The song, He never stops working. He never stops working even when I can't see it even when I can't feel it. And do you know the verse that I kept thinking of while we were singing that song? He who began a good work in you will see it completed until the day of Jesus Christ. I, didn't, I don't hear that song as, God's going to make my job better, though He may. God's going to make my marriage better, though He can. What I hear in that song is, God is at work on me, As an individual who is a failure and is prone to desert and leave and be a coward and sin and run and hide from the pressure of the world, instead God strengthens and restores and heals and puts fiber in my backbone so that I am not stuck in Acts 15. I can move on to 2 Timothy and be useful for ministry. To me, that is incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging, because this deserter, this coward, who probably ran naked from the garden scene with Jesus, wrote a gospel. We will go into eternity, and Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Correct? That's what Jesus said. That means the gospel of Mark will stand throughout all eternity as an accurate witness and testimony to the life of Jesus Christ. That will never go away. And Mark, who ran away at Jerusalem, will be the guy that wrote it. You see what I'm getting at? It's incredible how God uses you and me. And the encouragement for all of us in this author, John Mark, is... It's easy to identify with him. Sometimes it's hard to identify with Paul. Now, it's it's easy to identify when he's mad at Mark, like, okay, I get mad. I understand that. Uh, I get disappointed and just I don't want anything to do with these people. Okay, we can relate to that. But sometimes when Paul in Romans 9 is praying that he would go to hell so that his Jewish brothers could go to heaven, I uh, I don't relate to that. I don't love you guys that much that I would trade my salvation. That, and Paul knew that he couldn't do that either. But just the level of his passion is sometimes overwhelming. When you read the way that he describes uh, his desire for God and his desire for people to grow and his desire for the church to, to expand and the gospel, you're like, wow, man, Paul is clearly borderline superhero. Uh, in, in the Christian faith. But he's not. He's a, he's a man, like, every, like we are human beings. But man, I can relate to Mark. I can relate to the failure. And, praise the Lord, we can relate to how God grows us. Because you can look back on your life and say, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not where I want to be but I'm growing in the Lord because God is faithful and He's always at work in me by the power of the Spirit. So Mark, one more important thing about Mark. Paul was not the only guy that he was around. Look, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 5. Mark was actually an incredibly privileged guy. This is the end of Peter's first letter, and he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, She who is at Babylon, which we think is a veiled reference to Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, My son, greet one another with the kiss of love. He was not only with Paul in Rome, he was with Peter in Rome. Mark got to hang out with Peter and Paul, okay? I don't know how else else do we say this. He got to hang out for extended periods of time with two of the most important people in church history. Paul and Peter. And his relationship with Peter was actually very close because he calls him here his son. Now, he wasn't his literal son, he was a son in the faith. That is an expression that Paul uses about Timothy. He calls Timothy his son in the faith. That is a description of basically a mentorship type relationship where you are really invested in the life of somebody else. This is also called discipleship. Men, this is something you should be thinking about. Women, this is something you should be thinking about. The Bible specifically tells the older women to do this with younger women. Ladies, did you know that? You are specifically called to put young women under your wing and say, let me tell you about being a mom. Let me tell you about being a wife. Let me tell you about following Jesus Christ when your husband doesn't. Let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you how to be godly in a world that says that you're supposed to look a certain way and talk a certain way, and your Instagram's supposed to be a certain thing. Let me tell you what Jesus wants. Ladies, that is what you are supposed to be doing for other ladies. Men, that is what you are supposed to be doing for other men. And Peter as an apostle, and Paul as an apostle, both poured into Mark. Now, Paul, you get the impression that Mark was useful to him for his ministry, with Peter you hear the warmth immediately, Mark, my son. This is really important for us as we go through the book of Mark, because guess where Mark got all this information? Peter. The reason the book of Mark Started taking a larger uh, interest in the 1800s and the 1900s. There's a lot of reasons. I won't. I'd really bore you to death with all. I'd like them, but I know you won't. So uh, there. There's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the reasons is the the re-emphasizing of Mark gets its apostolic authority not because Mark was an apostle, but because it is the basically the teachings and the recollections, and the eyewitness account of Peter. So Mark is really Peter's point of view of his life with Jesus. A couple of things that are really interesting about that. Uh, One, you will find Mark being the most critical of Peter of all the Gospels. Now why do you think that is? Because if I'm going to tell my life story... And, and I've been humbled by the Holy Spirit, do you think I'm going to be bragging about myself or downplaying myself? I'm going to be downplaying myself. In the book of John, when John talks about that he was the disciple that Jesus loves, that he was the closest of all the disciples to Jesus, do you know how John writes that in his own gospel? Now the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even use his own name. Same thing is happening in the book of Mark. In fact, Peter's bad traits as in his personality and the screw-ups he had were, are highlighted most in Mark. Because Peter has an intimate recollection of his failures. So when Mark is reiterating, to that, reiterating that to us through the Gospel, he, you get a really good picture of Peter and it really gets to me because Peter, man, he just was so braggadocious about who he was, and I'm going to follow you, and he was just always out front and loud, and he was always had something to say, and not that I relate to that in any capacity, but I do relate to that very well, and so do some of you. And to see how God humbled him, and how God restores him, and Mark does a great job of, of showing Peter's perspective. Uh, throughout church history, if you're like, well, Pastor Steve, where are you getting this? Uh, Eusebius, he's uh, the first church historian writing in uh, the 4th uh, century. He quotes Papias, who was around uh, 150 AD, so Jesus died in about AD 33, so just start doing the math. Papias in 150 AD makes reference to the elder, which is probably John the Apostle, and John uh, references in saying that Mark was meticulous in gathering Peter's recollections of Jesus, but not necessarily in chronological order. So it's interesting, too, that the book of Mark does not necessarily list everything in day one, day ten, day 100. That is not the way Mark is laid out. Mark is laid out as highlights, which would make sense in the life of Jesus. Because if you're writing down the daily sermons you're hearing from Peter, right, as Peter's talking to the churches and talking to folks in Rome, and you're writing that stuff down, you're writing down the highlights. And several stories probably keep coming up over and over, and those are the ones you're putting down. So when you're putting together an account of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you want to highlight to the audience that this is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, not uh, for the Jewish world and of the Gentile world, the Savior. And you're you're wanting to highlight, so you're highlighting the stories, and that's why they believe he spent one-third of his gospel on the crucifixion story. It was probably written somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 65. I'm going to take the viewpoint that it was written in A.D. 65. Why am I taking that viewpoint? Because something really important is going on, and you as the audience hearing the sermon this morning need to understand the audience that probably heard the Gospel of Mark for the first time. In A.D. 64, Nero who is not famous for anything other than one thing, uh, Nero burnt the city of Rome. And then he blamed it on the Christians. uh, Which is what kicked off the most brutal early persecution of the church. I want to read you from the Roman historian Tacitus, what he said, and you're going to definitely hear that he has no love for Christians. This is what he says, "...but neither human help nor imperial munificence..." That's grace and help. "...nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle, scandal, or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order, by Nero's order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor..." Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. You you hear the love he's got for Christians, right? You also hear the historical accuracy that people tell you that there's no historical evidence for Jesus. Here's a Roman historian who clearly doesn't like Christians telling us that Christus, Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Okay, so we've got historical evidence. Don't the internet is f- filled with stupid people, uh, and you can find all kinds of people that sound like they sound like they know what they're saying, but they don't. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, so Christians are a disease. <laughs> First, then the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted. Not so much on the count of arson, the fire. As for hatred of the human race, and derision accompanied their end, they were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, where they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted on his car. Hence, in spite of a guilt that had earned the most exemplary punishment, there rose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. Nero also sent these Christians to the lions. So, Nero needed to blame somebody, and he did. By the way, 80% of Rome was destroyed by this fire. This wasn't a little thing. This was a massive, destructive, history-altering event, and he needed somebody to blame, and by golly, we've got some people to blame. These, they called them non-religious people, the Christians, because they only believed in one God instead of all the gods, and they wanted to punish Somebody, so these guys that are taught, and and the other reason was, remember I talked about the sexual ethic of the early church was like a big giant neon sign of how weird they were. One wife? What? One? And and no homosexuality? You're not allowed to do that? Because that was rampant in Rome. So no homosexuality and only one wife? This is ridiculous. How dare you pass judgment on us? I don't know if that sounds familiar, but that's the way that the world has always been. And so they were an easy target to hate. That wasn't the only reason. And so Nero would put them on crosses, cover them in tar, light them on fire. I, if you can fathom this, and you being a Christian in that setting, that's 8064 64, you're going into AD 65. If you think 2020 was horrible and 2021 is not much better, this is 8065 65 was horrible. Way worse if you were a Christian meeting in underground catacombs in Rome. Has anybody ever seen the underground Italian catacombs that's got all the skeletons and all that? Has anybody seen that on Discovery Channel? That's where they probably were meeting. And somebody comes to you with a parchment that starts with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has written an account from the Apostle Peter, of the teachings of Jesus. That was the audience, we believe, was the first recipients of the Gospel of Mark. Because he would have written it in Rome, and those Christians would have been the first to get it. It really gives you some thought as we read through the book of Mark to think that Mark, as he's writing, being led by the Holy Spirit, recounting what Peter's saying, that he's, he's got encouragement in mind of the power and the majesty of Jesus. And this place is not our home. We may die tomorrow. Be encouraged by these words of the Savior. The suffering of Jesus is one of the most prominent themes in the book of Mark. The reason why the audience receiving that is so important is that they were suffering. I cannot imagine my children dressed up in animal skins for the entertainment of others to watch dogs eat them until they're dead. I cannot fathom that, and I cannot fathom coming back into a room of my brothers and sisters broken with that hearing their screams in my ears. I need something and the Holy Spirit of God buoying up your soul and saying, it's okay, they're with me, and you're next. You may be hung on a cross and set on fire, but I'm with you until the end. You, you, you see the, the power of the words of God and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit of God and the necessity for the church in these days to have something But no less essential is our day, as we are bombarded not by dogs, but just the cares of this world and the luxuries that we have at our fingertips, where church is just a take it or leave it thing. So I wanted you to feel some of this as we start the book of Mark, because maybe it helps us. To recognize the need that we all have for the Word of God and knowing who Jesus is. Discipleship is costly. That's going to be a major theme. Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. That is the major theme of Mark. My hope as we go through this gospel together. is that you will be strengthened in your faith. I know that sounds, well, okay, that sounds real deep. Well, but it's true that when your faith is strengthened, the things of this world get dim, and the things of God become preeminent in your life, and that's what actually changes your marriage. That's what actually changes the way that you work. That's the way that things change in your life, Uh, when people treat you bad, and now instead of responding in anger, you respond with kindness and love and the fruit of the Spirit. It's not some, I'm going to be better in 2021. It's growing close to God, faith deepening, roots going down deep into the Scripture, learning who God is, drawing up like a tree does from those roots, the truth of God's Word. That's the transformation that we need to have. The other hope that I have is that this will cause all of us to have a stronger desire to share with others who our Savior is. As we get into the life of Jesus and His teaching and His suffering, um, I'm, I'm praying that it would open all of our hearts up to see how important it is to share Him with everybody around us. And... To be encouraged, my third thing is is that our faith and our courage and our resolve to endure till the end would be strengthened, that we would be uh, helped, that we would grow stronger, that we would be more courageous, that we would be more bold. The same way you can see John Mark, who wrote the gospel, and how he didn't stay in the place of Acts 15, but he grew beyond that, that we would do the same thing. Um in our walk with the Lord. One thing I did want to mention, this is just a technical thing that I find interesting. Uh, As we go in starting next week and just get into the exegeting each of the passages, you're going to find a word that is used uh, 56 times in the New Testament, and 42 of them are used in Mark. So it's only 12 places everywhere else, 42 times, 54 times elsewhere it's 42 times the word immediately is used immediately that word you are going to hear that word over and over and over and it gives you a sense of the way that this gospel is being presented and immediately and immediately and immediately and immediately he's casting out devils he's Raising the dead. He is immediately going here. He's immediately doing that. The Pharisees are immediately, it's just everywhere. And it's it's part of the vibe uh, of this gospel that it's rapid, it's quick, it's straightforward, it's cutting to the chase. It's got a little bit of Peter uh, and his attitude and his Mindset is in there. It's just let's get to the point, let's get to the good stuff. So for me, uh, my personality is actually more like probably Luke. I want to I want to slow down. I want to get into the details of what's going on. But Mark is not that way. Mark is going to be bang, bang, bang. So for those of you that like that, you're welcome. Uh, you're that's what you're going to get. You're going to get the rapid fire ministry of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to dismiss. I hope you're excited. I am. Sworn you in advance there some hard passages in Mark. So just for me. Uh, I think I ask that every time we do this. Uh, Just pray that God would help me um, teach it um, and just that we all hear what God wants us to hear over the next year or so as we go through this book. So let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you today for the, the historical reality of how we even got this book. Lord, there, there are realities that we, in our comfort, are quick and easy to forget. But Lord, I pray that you would drive home the truth that whether we have much or whether we have little, we can learn to trust you and be content in you for everything. Lord, that you're with us always, whether it's in persecution or whether it's in the nine-to-five grind of our life, you are with us. Lord, I pray that we would grow deep in our relationship with you and in our faith and in our courage and in our witness and in our testimony. God, I pray we would see fresh Jesus as Savior, fresh as Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us to know you better than we do today. Lord, we ask that you would give growth to us in our life and growth in this church. Lord, And you would call more folks to this place, God, that they would be a part of the growth and the courage and the strengthening. Lord, we we ask that you would work. Open the eyes of the blind, Lord. Let those that don't know you come to you. Lord, we thank you for all this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, tonight at 6 o'clock we are praying. If you can be here, that would be great. Until then, come back next week. We'll go past verse 1, I promise.